0: What is up, Crimaholics? Welcome back to Crimaholics Podcast. It's your host, Holly, and I am back today with another murder case to share with you all. This case is a case that went unsolved for far too long, but it's a reminder that despite the amount of time that has gone by in a case, a case can be solved, and there are people who are working behind the scenes to try and make sure that happens. I have to say that I am also surprised that more people haven't covered this case. I only accidentally stumbled upon this case when I was looking into another one, and this one just really instantly drew me in, and I knew I had to share it with you guys. So without further ado, let's get into the case of the murder of Lindsay Eklund. (music) Lindsay Lee Eklund was born on July 22, 1980 to her mother, Nancy Eklund. Lindsay was the youngest of three children with two older brothers. She was described to always be such a passionate and caring person that wanted to help anyone and everyone that she could. She had a very giving and loving heart, and she did things like volunteer every year at the soup kitchen for Thanksgiving, and she also was really big into donating her blood any chance that she could get. In a memorial post that I read for Lindsay, it said that giving back was so important to her that she would even stuff her pockets full of rocks to make sure that she hit that weight requirement for the blood banks. And her mother also said in an interview with Dateline that she would also lie about her age when she was underage just so she could donate her blood. A family friend recalled Lindsay as someone who loved animals, she loved people, she was a ray of sunshine in everyone's life, and she just had this zest for life. Now, growing up, Lindsay didn't have it easy. When Lindsay was a young girl, and I believe it was about the time that she was five years old, she was involved in a very bad car accident. The accident caused Lindsay to be in the hospital quite a bit when she was younger, and it also left her with a left arm that was paralyzed, and it also left her with an impaired left leg. Lindsay had to go through over 20 surgeries growing up, so again, she was in and out of the hospital, and as we all know, kids can be so extremely cruel, and she was often bullied. But though she was bullied for her disability, she didn't let that dull her sunshine. Despite these setbacks in life, Lindsay still remained upbeat and determined. And I wouldn't doubt if that was why she was so passionate about helping other people. So because of this disability, Lindsay did need a lot of help with some of her daily tasks. But overall, she got around just fine and she didn't let it slow her down. After the accident and growing up needing the care of her mother due to over two dozen surgeries, she and her mother became extremely close. Nancy had said in an interview that caring for Lindsay really gave her a purpose in life. She did everything that she could just to make sure that Lindsay's upbringing was as normal as possible despite her disability. Like, she just really wanted to make sure that she was treated normal, her daily life was as easy and normal to other kids as growing up. Nancy just dedicated her life and time to Lindsay and her needs. When Lindsay was in middle school, her father and two older brothers moved out of the home, and there wasn't much details on this, but I'm assuming that the parents separated and Lindsay wanted to remain with her mother. So again, it caused them to grow closer to each other and build a really strong bond. Now, as most teenagers and young adults do, Lindsay did keep things from her mom. And I truly don't think that this is anything out of the normal for most people. I am sure all of you guys listening can relate to things you did in your younger years as a teen or young adult that perhaps your family wouldn't approve of. So you lied a little here and there, you kept things to yourself, told half-truths, and so on. Those younger years in life is a time to really experiment. It's the time that you learn who you are, who you want to be, and usually it's the time that you do things that you regret. Or at least, I did. These are all life lessons, and Lindsay was just like the rest of us, living through that part of her life, doing some rebelling in a sense, and just trying to figure out who she was and who she wanted to be. Now, one example of this was changing the way that she spelled her name. Originally, when she was born, her name was spelt the traditional way of L-I-N-D-S-A-Y. But in those teen years, she decided that she wanted to change the way it was spelt and that she wanted to be unique and different from all the other Lindsays. So she changed the spelling to L-Y-N-S-I-E. Now, even though Lindsay was wanting to kind of go off and find her own identity, she still wanted to, I guess you could say, please her mom. She wanted to remain in a good, bright, positive life in the eyes of her mother. She never wanted to disappoint her or let her down. So as she got older and once more started trying to come into her own, she did hide things like most people do, which we will get into shortly. After Lindsay graduated high school, she went on to college at Fullerton College in Fullerton, California. During her time in college, she remained living in the home with her mother, and fortunately for her, the college wasn't far from where they lived in Southern California. During this time, Lindsay was also working as a tutor for young children, and she would often spend her weekends helping others learn. And though Lindsay was obviously busy with her studies and her tutor sessions, the 20-year-old always made sure to make time for her mother, who was literally her best friend. Every single Friday night, Nancy and Lindsay would make it a point to sit down together for dinner, whether it be at a restaurant or something that they whipped up together at home. However, on Friday, February 16th, 2001, Lindsay told her mom that she wouldn't be having their weekly dinner together because she had plans with her friend named Andrea. She told Nancy that she had planned to go over to Andrea's house and spend the night. Now, Nancy wasn't familiar with Andrea. She had never met her before, but because Lindsay was a 20-year-old woman, she could do as she pleased. So of course, Nancy said, okay, no problem. I totally understand. Lindsay busied herself around the house, preparing for her night at her friend's house. And when it came time for her to leave, there was a knock on the door. Nancy went to open the door and assumed that she would get the opportunity to officially meet Lindsay's friend, Andrea. But when she opened the door, a young man was standing on the other side. Lindsay introduced her mom to her friend Chris McAmis and said that he was going to be giving her a ride over to Andrea's house. Nancy recalls in an interview with Dateline that Chris seemed like a really nice young man. He was pleasant. They exchanged nice conversation, but despite him being well-mannered, respectable, and able to hold a natural conversation, something in the pit of Nancy's stomach felt off. Nancy set that worry aside and seems like she sort of just kind of chalked it up to the fact that she was so used to caring for Lindsay and that Lindsay was about to go out and be with her friends that maybe this uneasy was that she was uneasy about letting go and allowing Lindsay to live freely without her mom constantly around. Before Lindsay walked out of the door that night, Nancy called out to her daughter to remember to wear her seatbelt, and Lindsay replied back, quote, back at you, mom, love you. As Nancy watched her daughter walk away that night, she had no idea that that would be the last time she saw her daughter alive. The following day, February 17th, Lindsay was due to tutor two young girls who happened to live in the neighborhood as well. She was supposed to call her mom after she finished, and when Nancy waited around and heard nothing from her daughter, she decided to drive over to that house that Lindsay was supposed to be at. But when she got there and spoke with the parents, she learned that Lindsay never showed up for her tutoring job that morning. This was completely out of character for Lindsay. She was not the type to not show up to something she planned to be at, especially when it came to her job of tutoring. She took that very seriously, so when she didn't show up, her mom instantly knew something must have been wrong. Nancy immediately contacted the Placentia Police Department by phone to file a missing person's report for her daughter. Right off the bat, authorities weren't overly concerned because it really hadn't been that long since Lindsay was last seen. They were assuming that she likely had just stayed out too late, overslept, and would eventually show back home. After getting off the phone with the police department, though, Nancy drove over to the department herself and walked in to make sure that they were taking this seriously. She didn't want this situation to be brushed under the rug and forgotten about. She wanted them to make her daughter a priority because in her heart, she knew that this was wrong. When she got to the police department, this is when she met Detective Karen Loomis. Karen sat down with Nancy and really listened to her concerns. She allowed Nancy the opportunity to tell her all about her daughter and about how this is completely unlike and out of left field for her daughter. Now, Corinne said in an interview that it's not uncommon that families come in to talk to detectives and they tell them about how perfect their child is and paint them in such a positive light. She said that it's kind of like the family's way of trying to gain some sort of sympathy from detectives and create this soft spot for their child, thinking that it will make the detectives work harder to find them. But usually, that's not always the case, and the kids usually wander in eventually. And I guess according to Corinne, that's kind of what she also thought was going to happen with Lindsay and that is what she thought that Nancy was doing, talking about how great and perfect her daughter was. However, even though they think these things, detectives do still have a job to do, and so they started working on the case. Their first step was to go and speak with Lindsay's boyfriend, Matthew Ramirez. When they spoke with him, they learned that the day before she went missing, so it was that Thursday, February 15th, he went over to Lindsay's house. And while they were there together, she actually broke up with him. But then later that evening, they rekindled things and the two got back together. She also told him that she had plans to go to San Diego that next day. When asked who she was going to go with, she said Chris and everybody. I guess hearing that she was going to go to San Diego kind of surprised him, but he didn't want to push the issue because they already were kind of struggling in their relationship, so he told her to have fun and be safe. After this, they then brought in Chris McGamus for questioning. They learned that Chris was a 21-year-old and he was unemployed. He had met Lindsay through some mutual friends, and they hadn't known each other for more than four months. He told detectives that the story that Lindsay had told her mom about spending the night at Andrea's house that night was a lie that Lindsay had made up because she didn't want her mom to know their actual plan. Their actual plan for that night was that Chris was going to pick up Lindsay and then pick up a few other friends before heading down to San Diego to go clubbing. Chris said that the plan didn't go as intended because not all of them were of the age of 21, including Lindsay, and the clubs were apparently being stricter than they had anticipated. After being turned down entry into the club, they all drove back to Fullerton that night and got back into town sometime around 4 a.m. Chris said that he dropped off the other girls at their home and then drove towards Lindsay's house to drop her off too. Chris said that when they got near Lindsay's home, she asked him to drop her off at the street corner just about 50 yards from her house, so that her mom wouldn't hear Chris's truck pulling into the driveway. He said that after she hopped out of his truck at the corner, he turned around and drove home. The authorities were a little leery of Chris and wasn't really sure if they believed this whole dropping Lindsay off at the corner story. They felt that the story was odd, and it didn't make much sense, but when they interviewed more of her friends, they learned that this is something she often had her friends do. It wasn't uncommon for Lindsay not wanting her friends to drop her off right outside the home, and she did this to hide who she was with from her mom on occasion. When looking into Chris's story, they also found video footage that came from an ATM of a truck looking like Chris's driving in the direction of his house that matched his timeline of events. Everything that Chris said added up, and so though they felt the street corner story was odd, they started to believe him. When authorities spoke with Chris and Matthew, both young men mentioned a friend that Lindsay had that honestly seemed like the most unlikely friendship. The man that both Matthew and Chris mentioned was an older man, and Lindsay never mentioned this man's name, but would only refer to him as her friend. But this man would drive Lindsay around wherever she needed to go whenever she needed it. Nobody knew much about this guy other than he was always willing to give her a ride and that he was older. This was also a friend that Nancy had no idea about. Two days after Lindsay had gone missing, the phone rang and Nancy was surprised to answer it and hear the voice of an older man asking about Lindsay. This man was named Marty Rossler, and he said that he had gone to pick up Lindsay from school and she never came. He also mentioned having money he needed to give her for her tuition He expressed his concern because he hadn't heard from Lindsay and that he was a friend of hers who often gave her rides to places. The more the authorities looked into Marty, the more they learned. Marty Rossler wasn't actually Marty Rossler after all, but his name was Marty Preganza, And though it seemed like he was lying because he had some sort of criminal record and that's why he gave a false name that he was trying to hide it all, it was actually because Marty was a married man. They also learned that Marty was 58 years old. When they spoke with Marty, he admitted that he had lied about his name because he didn't want his wife to find out about Lindsay and that his relationship with Lindsay was strictly a friendship and that the extent of their interactions was mainly just rides that he would give her places. When he was brought in for questioning, they learned that Marty had seen Lindsay walking on the side of the road one day, and it was very apparent that she was struggling. He could tell that Lindsay had a disability and that she was determined to not let it stop her. But after seeing her walking some distance and repeatedly dropping the items that she was carrying, he stopped and offered her a ride. This is how they became friends. Marty was asked when the last time he had seen her was, and he admitted that he had seen Lindsay on that Friday before her San Diego trip police didn't buy his story and that was mainly because they had received a tip from a clerk at a local store who had said that she had seen Lindsay with an older man and that that man was described to resemble Marty and that she had seen them inside a store in the days after she was reported missing. The authorities started trying to drill into Marty's story and was really trying to put the pressure on him. They tried every single tactic to get him to crack and confess where Lindsay was, but he remained adamant that he wasn't involved in her disappearance. After a search was conducted at his home and literally no evidence to link Marty to the case, police were forced to continue the search and look at other possibilities. One afternoon, the investigators called up Nancy and told her that they were going to come over and talk with her. Nancy busied herself prepping her home and baking cookies, making coffee, in hopes that the investigators were coming over with some new information that will help bring her daughter home. But when they arrived, she was shocked to find that they were there holding a search warrant for her property. In hand, they had shovels and cadaver dogs at the ready. This absolutely blew Nancy's mind. She was utterly shocked that she was now being looked into for her daughter's disappearance. And I can only imagine what that felt like. In an interview that Nancy did with Dateline, she had stated that prior to them even showing up at her house, she didn't even know what a search warrant was. So it was a complete shock for them to literally go through her entire house top to bottom like they did. And while I understand why they truly have to look at every single possible avenue... My heart hurts for her sweet mama who had to not only be let down that they weren't coming over for cookies and to talk about case developments, but that they were coming over to thoroughly search her house because they were now considering her as one of their suspects. Of course, they didn't find anything inside of Nancy's home, and she was ruled out as having any kind of involvement. They also officially ruled out Lindsay's boyfriend Matthew as being involved because he had an alibi for the night that checked out. A year after Lindsay had gone missing, the police were still left wondering what had happened, and they were no closer to learning the answer. So they decided to start back at square one and bring Chris McAmis in for questioning. When they brought him in, they noticed how calm and almost nonchalant he was speaking about his friend who could potentially be dead. He was saying things like he hoped that she was off with friends, he hoped that she was alive, and a few other odd things that really stuck out to authorities. So they asked him, if she is dead, what do you think they should do? And he replied, find the guy. And the officer said, okay, Then what? And he replied, they'll go to jail. And the officer asked, well, for how long do you think? And Chris replied, as long as it takes. And they asked again, well, for how long do you think? And he only replied, for a while. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I feel like most people would be super passionate about what should have happened to someone who could have possibly killed someone that they knew and loved. I know many people are for the death penalty. Many people are for life in prison for the rest of their lives. But everyone would all agree prison for a long, long time is what that person deserved. But Chris wouldn't say it. Like, isn't that odd? I know for me, if someone murdered my friend, I would be so enraged that I would be screaming and shouting and demanding justice. But not Chris. He was just so, meh. Jail, I guess, for a while for that guy. With his lack of emotion, police put him on the top of their list. But just because he didn't have any emotions about something they felt that he should have, it wasn't evidence, so he was free to leave. Meanwhile, Nancy was still holding out hope that one day, Lindsay would come back home. Over the years that she was missing, new sightings would happen where people had thought that they had seen Lindsay out in public. Nancy said that when she would hear about these, she would hang on to those people's every single word, hoping and praying it was the truth. On top of being hopeful for her daughter, Nancy was also utterly frustrated and angry with the Placentia Police Department. She had felt completely left out of the loop on what they were doing for her daughter's case. She had absolutely no idea about what was going on behind the scenes. Which can be so frustrating for a family, and I can imagine they feel like zero work is being done because they're not hearing about it. But the police department was working on her case, but they kept hitting one wall after another. And after all detectives in the the police department examined the case, they knew that they needed some outside help. After seven years with no new leads, the Placentia Police Department decided to hand the case over to the cold case unit at the Orange County DA's office. And that is when the case was given to a man named Larry Montgomery, who also goes by the name of the Evidence Whisperer. Now, Larry is an extremely experienced homicide detective with over 30 years dedicated to putting away the bad guy. He very slowly and meticulously combs through each piece of evidence and usually always finds something that the first investigators initially missed. So Larry's new fresh eyes go through every single thing that was handed over, and his main two people he was beginning to look into is Marty and Chris. He also begins to consider the fact that maybe this was a completely random situation where someone had spotted Lindsay after Chris dropped her off. But while he kept an open mind to that idea, it was one that he pretty much set aside. Over two years, Larry scoured Lindsay's case files and watched the hours upon hours of video interviews. To him, the fact that Marty had lied about his name was almost like an attempt to save his marriage. Larry felt that Marty was truly concerned how this friendship with Lindsay would look to his wife. There was also no surveillance footage backing the claims that Marty and Lindsay were ever seen together in a store after she had reportedly gone missing. Because of the things Larry saw in Marty's interview and the fact that he genuinely seemed concerned for Lindsay's whereabouts, Larry ruled Marty out as being involved which brought Larry back to the person who had last seen Lindsay, Chris McAmis. And as we know, the Placentia Police Department pretty much ruled Chris out as being involved because of the ATM surveillance footage that showed a truck that looked like Chris's driving towards his home and away from Lindsay's that matched the timeline that Chris gave. But when Larry looked into this footage, it was not quite what it had initially seemed. The truck that passed the ATM was in fact a white truck, but on this truck, the side mirrors were black. When he examined a picture of Chris's truck, he found that Chris's side mirrors were not black, but they were white like the rest of the truck. So this proved that the truck that drove past that ATM was not Chris McGamus' truck. Now again, this was the only piece of evidence that investigators thought they had to prove that Chris wasn't involved. Larry decided to dig a little bit deeper into Chris and his past, and after interviewing some of Chris's ex-girlfriends, he learned that Chris had a violent side to him. The ex-girlfriend said that there were times that Chris would get violent when he felt like he had been rejected, and rejection in his eyes was what Chris referred to as disrespectful. Larry went back and listened to all of the interviews that Chris had done and found that Chris would alternate between speaking of Lindsay in the present tense and then switching to the past tense, which many feel that speaking of someone in past tense is an admission of guilt. The more Larry dug, the more that came out about Chris. Larry also found that Chris wasn't truthful about where he was on the day after Lindsay went missing. Chris had initially told investigators that he mainly stuck around his house on that day. But when Larry looked into his credit card statements, he found that Chris had made a purchase in Santa Clarita, California, which Santa Clarita, California is about 50 miles north of where Chris lived. And on top of this transaction, he also found that there was large cash deposits being made into Chris's account before and after Lindsay went missing. Now, as I said earlier, Chris had said that he was unemployed, but Larry started piecing things together and it seemed that Chris was not only collecting unemployment checks, but it also appeared that he was working under the table for his dad who worked in construction. And it also just so happens that between the years 2000 and 2001, his dad had a job site in Santa Clarita. After making a trip to Santa Clarita and doing some more interviews, Larry learned that Chris was in fact working for his father and that he was there daily running the tractor. With this information, Larry got this feeling and this hunch that Lindsay was there in Santa Clarita buried at that work site. In October of 2010, Larry and his team planned an undercover operation, and the reasoning for this was because they wanted to see Chris's reaction and what he would do and say. They picked a female officer from a town over to go undercover and pose as a college student that was working for the Fullerton College magazine as a student reporter. Officer Sindeli was a young blonde officer who could pass as a college student. She was equipped with a phony press badge for the school, dressed in some blue jeans and a shirt that a college girl would wear, and had a wire on. And she walked up to Chris's front door and introduced herself with a phony name. Apparently, in previous years, Chris had been interviewed about Lindsay's disappearance for the school magazine and newspaper, so this wasn't completely out of left field. Officer Sindeli told Chris that she was there because they had just received word that they believed that Lindsay Eklund's remains had been found. That the police were now working on doing DNA testing as they spoke and that she was sent out to interview friends and family of Lindsay's to get their initial reaction to the news. Officer Sindeli said in an interview with Dateline that as soon as she told him that possible remains had been found, his demeanor completely changed and his face instantly went pale. Now, this, of course, was all a lie. The police had not recovered Lindsay's remains, but they wanted to see what he would do. So she began asking questions and he instantly shut her down. He told her that this wasn't a convenient time for him to speak to her and he practically shut the door in her face. After the undercover officer left, there were several detectives nearby watching the movement in and around Chris's house. It appeared that on that night, Chris McAmos was struggling to sleep, and at around 3 a.m., he went out to his detached garage to do some work. They felt confident that they had rattled him, and the following day, they trailed him to see where he was going. At some point, Chris became aware that he was being followed, so they decided to just cuff him and bring him in. This was the first time that Larry Montgomery would meet Chris face to face. Larry spent 45 minutes laying out the facts for Chris on why his story didn't add up. He laid everything out for him, telling him that he knew the truck on the footage wasn't his. He told him about the credit card statements and how he knew his dad's job site was in Santa Clarita. And he also told him about interviewing people who said Chris was there working for his dad as a tractor driver during that time. He also told the lie to Chris as well about Lindsay being found. During this entire time that Larry is laying out the details, Chris just sits there stone-faced, not speaking, not doing anything, but staring at Larry as he laid those facts out. And then Larry begins talking about how he knows Chris had previously been violent with ex-girlfriends, but he doesn't know what Lindsay could have done to provoke Chris. He then asks if this was a premeditated thing. And this is when Chris sighs heavily and shakes his head, no. Then Larry asks him, so what did you do? Again, Chris sighs. He sits back in his seat and he crosses his arms and he says, Quote, I think I need a lawyer to speak with you. Now, because the words, I want a lawyer, never came out of his mouth, the authorities were able to still kind of dance along a fine line of questioning. They had to carefully ask questions, not to provoke him further to actually say those words. His statement of saying, I think I need a lawyer, didn't pass as him actually saying, I want a lawyer, so legally they could continue to question him, which they did. They felt the pressure at this point because they didn't want this interview to end. They wanted to finally get this confession out of Chris and finally be able to lock him up. So they played into this sympathy telling Chris that they didn't want to label him as a monster. There must have been something that happened during that night or early morning with Lindsay to provoke Chris to do something. Chris sat silent before another big sigh, and then he said, okay, this is what happened. This was finally the moment that everyone had waited so long for. So many hours dedicated to this case, and finally they were about to hear the truth. Chris said that on that night, he was going to take Lindsay home in the early morning hours, but Lindsay said that she would just stay at his place because she didn't want to wake and upset her mother. Chris said that while they were there at his place, he tried to kiss Lindsay, and she elbowed him in the chest, which remember that Chris feels that rejection from a woman is completely disrespectful. So at this rejection, he was pissed, and he got up and out of the room and went to the kitchen where, according to him, he drank a lot of vodka. He then went back into the room and tried to come on to Lindsay again. At this point, Lindsay pretended to be asleep, so Chris tried to pull her pants down. Lindsay shot up and said, oh my god, what are you doing? I'm calling the police. She had grabbed his phone to make that call, and Chris got up and approached her, at which point Lindsay struck him with the phone in the face. Chris said that enraged him even more because he was so drunk and, quote, it set me on fire. He said at that point he grabbed her, threw her onto his bed, got her into a headlock and she died. He said that he was shocked at how quickly she had died and that he didn't know what to do. He said that he thought when he put her into a headlock that she was only going to pass out, but instead he ended up killing her. Chris then said he drove up to the work site and used a skip loader to dig a hole. He held on to Lindsay's body for a few days, and then when he was able to bury her with no one around, he took her up to Santa Clarita and buried her at that work site. Chris then says how much better he felt now that he finally said the truth. And I can imagine that it felt like a weight being lifted off of his shoulders to finally speak the truth and get that off of his conscience. Larry then showed an aerial photo of the worksite to him and asked him exactly where he had buried Lindsay. Larry explained to Chris that even though they found Lindsay, which obviously wasn't true, they needed to know where he buried her because the ground had shifted due to flooding. Chris pointed to a place on the picture, and then not long later, detectives drove him out to the spot so he could physically show him where he buried Lindsay. He couldn't 100% pinpoint the area due to the new trees and such that had been planted, but he pointed between two areas. After just over a day of digging, they found a shoe, then a jacket, and then a bracelet that was still fastened to the arm of what was left of Lindsay. The bracelet was how Nancy knew that her daughter had been found but dental records were used to confirm that it was, in fact, Lindsay Eklund. Two years later, in 2012, Chris McAmis pled guilty to second-degree murder and was sentenced to 15 years to life. At his sentencing, Nancy made a statement that said, quote, For all those years, he had the luxury of having a normal, happy life. And for all those years, I looked for Lindsay every single day. When I found out he killed her, he took my heart. She only had use of one hand and arm, and it was impossible for her to fight him off. She didn't stand a chance, End quote. During this, Chris stood there in his orange jumpsuit with his hands shackled with his head bowed. To this day, Nancy takes a piece of Lindsay with her wherever she goes. The bracelet that was recovered from her remains, Nancy now wears and never takes off. Her daughter may be gone, but Nancy certainly will never forget her, nor will all of those that loved her. This entire case is so gut-wrenching and heartbreaking. It's so sad to me that so much time passed with no answers. But at the same time, I am thankful for cold case detectives like Larry Montgomery who help breathe new life into unsolved cases. Without his meticulous way of combing through each piece of evidence, who knows if this case would even be solved today. And everybody, that is the case... Of Lindsay Eklund. Before I wrap up, I want to remind everyone to make sure that you're a part of our private Facebook group. You can find it by searching Crimeaholics Podcast Discussion Group. In there, we share all pictures and information pertaining to the cases that we cover, and we also encourage all of our members to share all things true crime. You can also follow us on Instagram at Crimeaholics.podcast, and if you'd like more true crime content, you can follow me on TikTok at the same username of Crimeaholics.podcast. Lastly, if you wish to follow myself personally, you can find me on Instagram at crimaholly. Crimaholics. that is all for this week's case. Kinsey will be back on Monday with another Missing Monday case. Until then, be aware and take care.